Right, Martha says we're ready. So welcome everyone to this final event in our politics week uh, at the UK in a changing Europe. Today is your chance to ask questions. So I'm going to go straight to the Slido and to questions. As ever, could you please vote for the question you'd like me to ask the panellists? Uh, you can, if you want, specify a panellist if you really want. I might ignore you if you do. But uh, get your questions coming in and we'll put as many of them as we can in the time to our panellists who are Paula Surridge, uh, UK, UK Change Europe Deputy Direct, Director, Sir John Curtis, uh, Dan Wincott, University of Cardiff and Nicola McEwen from the University of Edinburgh. I assume John Curtis didn't need introduction there, sorry, University of Strathclyde. Uh, here's a good one to kick us off, which I suppose, I mean, this is probably i'd say paula and john but does the does the fact of our electoral system mean the conservatives are going to be in power forever which is a probably sort of reflection on the elections I no i mean the short answer to that question is no and i'll give you two reasons it's true that at the moment that the electoral system is operating to labor's disadvantage i.e even if labor had been as far ahead of the Conservatives as the Conservatives were of Labour back in 2019, Labour would still perhaps have just been short an overall majority. But we should also remind ourselves that uh, Tony Blair was significantly assisted by the operation of the electoral system uh, a little more than 20 years ago, and that indeed without the assistance of the electoral system, um, the Labour Party would certainly not have won an overall majority in 2005 when Labour only managed to get 36% uh, of the vote. So uh, the, the point is that, you know, there are, there are two essential reasons why the electoral system can advantage one of the larger parties over the other. One is to do with the size of the electorate. Uh, the other is to do with geographical distribution. The geographical distribution element tends to uh, vary over time as so far as to who it benefits. And as far as electorate size is concerned, well, actually, even now, differences of electorate size are actually advantaging Labour rather than the Conservatives. So that's point one. Point two, however, um, is that if we are asking the question about the prospects of these two parties acquiring the reins of power, uh, this is not simply a question of their relative chances of winning an overall majority. Yes, at the moment, the Conservatives have a better chance of securing an overall majority than do Labour, given the current geography of the vote. But we also have to bear in mind that the Conservatives are not coalitionable. Um, and that therefore, while the Conservatives do need to win an overall majority or something very, very close to it, after all, we can't even presume that the DUP will be willing to sustain a Conservative minority administration in future. The Conservatives will almost undoubtedly be out on their ear. Labour do not even have to be the largest party at the next election, where almost undoubtedly the SNP, the Liberal Democrats, uh, as well as some of the Northern Ireland parties will want to put a minority Labour administration into power, albeit perhaps with a variety of conditions that might include the pursuit of electoral reform, as well as the pursuit of an independence referendum in Scotland. Um, but uh, that given that the Conservatives basically do not have any friends, they either have to win or they're out. Labour does not have to win in order potentially to be in. Brilliant. Paul, have you, would you want to add anything to that? Just add something kind of very long term, um, thinking about how um, the, the 
geography and demographics might change as well. We, we don't know how that might change coming out of um, the current crisis. We've seen a certain element of people moving out of cities um, during the COVID crisis. If working from home becomes more practical, people that trend might continue. And paradoxically, um, should the government succeed in moving all sorts of departments out of Westminster, then it's picking up lots of young graduates or even older graduates, uh, um, taking them from London and putting them in other parts of the country. So we don't necessarily know what the, the demographics are going to look like um, in, in mm. another decade, even another five years. Dan, uh, this is what I'm going to pose to you first. It's a nice, easy question. Is Welsh independence a realistic possibility in the next few decades and what factors might make it more likely? I mean, answering that question with a simple yes or no is um, would be foolish. Uh, I think what's really striking is that Welsh independence uh, has become a topic of conversation uh, in Wales uh, in, a, in a much more widespread way uh, than was the case even a couple of years ago. Um, you know, there's a, there's a campaign, which is a non-party campaign called Yes Cymru, um, which has led, you know, marches from Cardiff city centre to the football stadium when the national team has been playing in Cardiff uh, for uh, two or three years now. And I see their little red stickers all over the place. Uh, when I go for a lockdown walk. Um, I mean, there are fiendishly complicated issues around um, state capacity, around uh, public spending, around the condition of the economy, around the nature of the Anglo-Welsh border. Um, even so, you know, if you take a really long-term perspective on Wales, uh, for example, if you were to look at the pattern of uh, transport infrastructure in Wales, if you're to look at, at, at railways, um, it's clear that they've never been developed on the basis of Wales being a nation. I mean, it's, it's impossible to get from North Wales to South Wales on a train without going through England, and it takes a really, really long time. Um, so the, the, the infrastructure basically runs from the South Wales valleys, the old coal fields down to the coast, and then east-west uh, along the uh, north and south coast of Wales. Uh, and, and I think there is a sense behind uh, the discussion of independence that kind of really taking decisions for Wales within Wales on a much larger scale is, uh, is something to be taken seriously. So, you know, I, I, I wouldn't predict anything a couple of decades out uh, but the, the terms of the debate have changed. And that's part of a changed terms of debate in, in relation to things like, um, you know, the degree of name recognition for someone like Mark Drakeford, uh, the, the first minister. So, so, you know, Wales feels like a very different place to England politically now. Um, and there's much more of a focused debate on Welsh issues and what is in Welsh hands now, uh, particularly after the COVID pandemic, than there was uh, at any time in the past, really. Thank you. Just you wait for Great British Railways is all I can say. Everything's going to change. Uh, you won't be able to buy a ticket for them in <laughs> Wales. So. I suppose related. And uh, Nicola? Sorry, I was just going to say, you know, I think all of these sorts of debates that take place in each of the territories of the United Kingdom, actually, have their own dynamics. But I think the prospects of Welsh independence would probably be coloured 
by the prospects of Scottish independence because the consequences of that, and I, and I wouldn't, uh, like Dan, I think it would be foolish to say either way, even in the case of Scotland, whether it was likely to be independent or not. But if it was, then that has significant consequences for Wales in that it can be quite difficult for, for Wales to get recognition in Whitehall as it is. Mm. Um, and it would be even more difficult, I think, if it were left as the very small uh, nation um, within uh, the rest of the United Kingdom if Scotland were to leave. And so I think in, those, in, that, in that aspect, I think that the two are linked. Yeah, can I just add to this, Anne, that, I mean, there clearly is now much more in the way of elite level debate on this subject in Wales. Quite what impact it's had on public opinion, however, is more debatable. If you follow the YouGov Time series, which has been asking people now in Wales the same question that was asked on the 2014 ballot paper in Scotland, should Wales be an independent country? Basically, it's flatlining at just over 20 percent. So lots of of discussion, and one shouldn't underestimate the potential long-term significance of that. But I think one needs to be aware that so far, at least, it seems to be much more at that level, rather than something that's clearly now something that's more popular. And of course, it's also true that in the sense of uh, another feature of the debate in Wales is that yes, the Senate has become much more prominent, but we still got around one in five people in Wales saying they think it should be abandoned. And to that extent, at least the character of the constitutional debate in Wales is different from that in Scotland. In Scotland, really, it is in a sense a one-sided debate. It's between the union versus independence. In Wales, it is a multi-sided debate between those who really are still aren't very keen on the Senate at all, uh, those who would like it to be much more powerful, stroke independent, and those in the middle. Um, and the fact that there is still a sizable body of people in the middle perhaps helps to explain why it's possible for the Labour Party, which to some degree straddles that constitutional divide um, in Wales, is able uh, still to be an effective electoral machine in a way that the party north of the border, uh, frankly, is struggling to be uh, uh, through its attempts still to try to be a centre party on the constitutional issue. Yeah, that was a theme that came out very clearly in our event yesterday, actually, about Labour in Scotland. But there's a sort of, I suppose, inevitable follow-on from Mike here, which I'll give to you first, Nicola, which is, will Scotland be independent in 10 years' time? <laughs> um, no idea. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I think that, that all I would say is that there is no inevitability about any of this stuff. Mm. Um and I think if, if there is to be a referendum and it isn't won by the independent side, then that in itself could have a significant effect on the independence movement. And I'm thinking there of the parallel um, with Quebec and Canada, hmm. which in 1995 came very close uh, to supporting independence within less than 1% of a vote uh, of a difference. Um, and that had been the culmination of a series of, of constitutional grievances and efforts to try and address them and failing to address them. And it led to that moment. And the effect of the longer term effect of that not succeeding at that time, which was a, there to a second bite at the cherry, if you like, um, is that now, you know, um, how far are we on from 1995, quite a few decades on, 
support for independence is really not minuscule, but it's it's nowhere near the heights that it was at that time. The 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 Nationalist Party that was the dominant force at that time is no longer a dominant force in politics. So um, there isn't an inevitability uh, about these things, and I think that partly um, plays into the cautious approach that we see from Nicola Sturgeon, First Minister, because. Um, I think the, the stakes around a second independence referendum are so much higher for mm. all sides, actually, uh, than they were uh, first time around. Brilliant. I suppose related, uh, incidentally, for those who are interested in the comparison in, in our podcast out today, Elsa Henderson talks quite a lot about the comparison between Canada and Scotland, and it's really, really interesting. Uh, but another question here is, is, is the kind of muscular unionist approach being adopted seemingly by the British government the right approach to be taking? And if anyone wants to. Well, I mean, uh, uh, there are interesting parallels. Um, part of the muscular unionism, at least, seems to be that we reserve the right to spend on areas of public expenditure that are basically devolved and where hitherto it's been accepted that um, therefore that expenditure on these things are determined by the Scottish government. Um, and the strategy seems to be that what we want to do, for example, is to uh, be able to put up signs along the A9, which for those who don't know is the main spine road between Inverness and the Central Belt, say, uh, which has long been a, a bit of a bottleneck because uh, it's not fully dueled, saying you know, this, this road has been dueled by the UK government. Um, and it does, uh, and that somehow or another is going to make people in Scotland duly grateful uh, to the UK government for having uh, dueled the A9. Of course, it's remarkably redolent of what the European Commission used to do which was to say, you know, this project was funded by the European Union. Indeed, uh, on one occasion when I took a holiday on a, the remote island of Ede in the Orkneys, there was a barley field. Now, you know, this is pretty, pretty marginal agricultural territory, right? And so here was this barley field, which, you know, frankly, nobody was ever going to go past because it's a small remote island, saying, you know, this field is being funded by the European Union. Um, well, you know, much good all of that did the European Union inside the UK, and I suspect the same will be true of the UK government. It does rather ignore the fundamental issue. The fundamental issue basically now in Scotland is about the legitimacy of its constitutional arrangements. And that legitimacy is about who should have the right to take certain decisions. And certainly, um, although we can have interesting debates about who people think should be taking decisions about defence and monetary affairs for Scotland. I mean, I certainly don't know of any polling evidence that suggests that there's a large appetite in Scotland for people who believe that uh, decisions about de currently devolved matters should be taken by the UK government rather than the Scottish government. That said, what I think you know, is still intriguing is the extent to which the SNP are able actually to politicise and draw attention to this issue. I mean, there have been all sorts of debates in the last uh, three or four years, not least to do with uh, the EU continuity legislation, where all of this was potentially an issue, but where so far I'm not really sure uh, that the SNP have, have made it take off. But anyway, we will have to see. The other problem, of course, about muscular unionism, it does therefore me, it does help to highlight 
the fragmentation of the unionist response uh, uh, to uh, nationalism in Scotland. So at the moment, we have a conservative government that does indeed seem to think, you know, doing more in Scotland and us doing more in Scotland is the answer. Whereas clearly the position of the Labour Party is that, well, maybe actually we need to try yet another dose, a third dose of more devolution um, as the way um, out of the bind in which we find ourselves. Well, those are two very, very different approaches. And, you know, it does remind you of the division within the Remain movement about what should we do about Brexit? And that ended up being a rather sorry tale. And I think certainly the unionist side were at risk finding themselves ending up with this in a sorry tale as well, simply because they can't actually agree about what they think the position for Scotland should be. Cool. Uh, Nicola? Um, yeah, just go back to the question about is muscular unionism, I hate the term by the way, um, <laughs> but is it the right approach? I mean, if, if I take from that to be, is it likely to strengthen or save the union? Mm. Um, I mean, there's nothing in particularly wrong with nation building. Um, if you think of the state trying to promote itself as a, a, a place where people will benefit from remaining a part of. Okay. And then to a certain extent, we've seen that a little bit with the discourse around the vaccine program. Mm -hmm. um, and that seems to me to be quite clever politics in, in a sense. But by muscular unionism and the federal, sorry, the federal, the, the spending powers that John was referring to that the UK government has gifted itself, and mm. um, what seems to be um, happening, or certainly an intention, is for the UK government to compete with the devolved institutions in areas of devolved competence. Now, from a community perspective, will they care where money is coming from if it's coming? I don't think so. But I do think they will care if it's seen as a way of competing with and undermining the devolved institutions. And that would emerge if there was a conflict. And you know, there's an obvious example that Dan might talk about in the case of Wales. But if the UK government wanted to fund something in an area of devolved competence that was not a priority or indeed was opposed uh, by uh, the Scottish Parliament, then you start to see um, these things become quite politicised and a bit more visible. And the other thing to, to, to mention is in terms of the Union Jack and, and um, surrounding things in the flag and the hope that that might strengthen attachment to the state. Well, the Union Jack is not the inclusive symbol in Scotland that um, they might like it to be. There was a period around about the, uh, the Olympics and when Stella McCartney made it quite cool and um, then, you know, that might have had a bit more mm. resonance among a wider group of people then. But now, you, know, you only have to look at the pictures from George Square in Glasgow last weekend to see the way in which it would not necessarily be the inclusive symbol that they are hoping um, yeah. it would be. Interesting. <laughs> I, I do want to come back to uh, Devo Max. And actually, for those of you who are interested, if you watched the video of our event yesterday, Paul Goodman from Conservative Home was very interesting in saying that actually, in a curious way, the Tories want Labour to start doing a bit better in Scotland with an oh, eye yeah. on the uh, independence debate. But Dan, do you want to, I don't know if that was your cue to talk about the M4? Uh, absolutely, I can talk <laughs> about the M4 bypass, the Bringlass tunnels um, uh, outside outside Newport. So this is a, a major infrastructure project. There's a, the motorway goes down to two lanes. It's um, possibly an even more notorious 
bottlenecked in the A9 uh, locally. Um, uh, the Welsh government had looked at it, uh, scoped it out, and eventually decided not to pursue it. And Boris Johnson, over a period of time, initially talking about a potential benefit if the Conservatives were successful in a devolved election in Wales, uh, and then uh, and then moving on to say that the UK government would just directly fund this uh, and implement it over, over the head of the Welsh government, um, which is... Uh, which is a, um, it's hard to interpret that except as a deliberately kind of uh, abrasive or confrontational move from, from the UK government. And, um, you know, whatever the period is over which we might be looking at moves towards Scottish independence, um, there's going to be quite a long period uh, during which uh, the devolved governments and the UK government will have to have to coexist. Um, when you have even 20% of the Welsh population interested in ind independence and Scotland split 50-50, it's very easy for those relationships to become really uh, uh, abrasive, sort of locked into uh, a, a, um, uh, a, a confrontational dynamic. Um, and, and, and I think there's a there's a kind of an identity underpinning to all of this as well. So, you know, I'm um, uh, less opposed for perhaps rather obscure reasons to the notion of muscular unionism than is than is Nicola. Uh, but it does beg the question of, you know, what is the union? What is the UK for? And how is that understood by political leaders and by mass Publics in each of the parts of the of the UK, and and it seems to me that in England and for the Conservative government, they have a kind of Anglo-British vision of the UK as a whole, uh, and and that's related to um, something that you you probably talked to 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 Elsa about this morning. The, the the fact that in in England the symbols of Englishness and Britishness actually kind of overlap and mutually support yeah. one another. Yeah whereas they don't work in that way in any other part of the UK, in Wales or, or Scotland or, or Northern Ireland. Um, and so promoting Britishness from England may seem like uh, a very obvious thing to do, and, um, and, and yet it can very easily then rub people up in a very different way uh, in, in, in other parts of the UK. I can remember a Conservative MP uh, from the English side of the border during the pandemic at a stage when... Uh, the Welsh government uh, diverged in its exit from lockdown over the summer, getting really offended by the fact that he couldn't go and his constituents couldn't go to their nearest beach in North Wales. And that came across as a kind of almost a sort of personal insult to him when, you know, when the nearest beach in England was only a, a mile and a half further on. Um, so there's a sense in which, you know, Welshness doesn't really make sense to a, an English conservative politician. It's it's another province of the of the state rather than a separate nation in a sense. And 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 I think that notion of a kind of a, a, a toxic sort of abrasive standoff between the governments is a is a serious issue or may prove to be a serious issue for politics across Britain over the next period of time. Now, I'm going to jump around a bit on subjects because I want to keep you all uh, involved. And Paula, I've kept you waiting for ages, but I've kept you waiting for a bit of a cracker here. Uh, 
With the Conservatives moving to the centre-left in economic terms, what should centre-left parties do? To <laughs> that was worth waiting for, wasn't it? I, every single time I sit back down at my computer, there's a new article on what Labour should do, and I'm not sure I've got time to, to go through them all now. It is hard, certainly, for Labour at the moment because the Conservatives are moving into that territory, even with the things like that we've seen around. I know Grant Shapps was at pains to tell us it wasn't nationalisation of the railways, but if, if you brand it in that way and present it in that way, it, it ticks the boxes, it, it makes voters see it in that way. So it is hard because that's what Labour wants to do as a strategy. They want to talk a lot less about everything else, a lot more about the economy and try and unite that vote. But at the same time, the Conservatives are making the space to do that much smaller. The space where it, the, the space that exists is also space where that left vote divides a bit more. So it's around welfare, which divides that vote um, in, mm. in particular ways. And perhaps also around some of the issues on public sector pay, which also can be quite divisive. So there are spaces there, but they're not simple spaces for them to move into. Um, so what should the centre left do? I mean, I don't think I'm incapable of giving a single answer to that. Like I say, there are, <laughs> you could fill the whole pages of The Guardian for the last two or three days with the articles that have come out since the election and centre-left parties everywhere else don't seem to have managed to quite crack that yet either. So I think for, for Labour particularly, I think they need to be more outward-looking in that there's an awful lot of debate internally about what they should be doing rather than getting on with connecting externally. And I think that might be a big problem. There's a lot of talk at the moment um, about potentially new leadership, you know, if another by-election is lost, that will be the end sort of thing. We're talking about a general election in two years' time, just over two years' time. Have Labour really got time to have that whole internal debate again and do all those fights again? I think they have to start, if they really want to be serious, looking outwards rather than inwards. And that means looking at which voters they can win, not which places they can win. So stop looking at places, look at people and think about how you can connect with those people and how you can bring them together. And actually what we've just been talking about in terms of, in terms of um, unionism, there's a whole piece missing there about the fact that, and, and we, we can wind back, I'm, I'm doing a kind of John Denham impression now. <laughs> there's, there's a whole piece missing there about connecting with England. Um, and that's something that I think Labour could learn some lessons um, from Wales in particular in terms of looking outward and collect, connecting with people in the places they actually are rather than where they imagine them to be. Sorry, that's not one a very good answer. You waited a long time for a not very good answer. <laughs> no, it's very, one of, the, one, of the, one of the problems for Labour, as Tim Bale pointed out yesterday, is the fact is there are people inside the party who wouldn't be all that upset if they lost Batley and Spen because it would prove that they were right. In their view, I mean, there's that internal fight is rumbling on. But I, I, but I imagine part of the answer to that question is, is temporal, isn't it? In the sense that we're in a very specific moment of time at the moment where the Conservatives are just writing checks and no one seems to mind. But that won't continue forever. So I imagine that at a certain point, post-pandemic, post-lockdown, where we're actually counting the cost of this, the Conservatives might struggle to position themselves quite as clearly on the sort of 
Labour territory because there'll be an internal debate in the party over this. Absolutely. And at the point that's happening, do you really want to be involved in a leadership campaign inside your own party? <laughs> it just seems crazy to me. Yeah. John, did you want to chip in on this? You don't have to, but... Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, there is no doubt that um, even before the pandemic, we're looking at a Conservative government whose stance towards the role of the state um, was much more interventionist than really any um, conservative administration, at least, and arguably any administration of any colour uh, since 1979. Um, I, I guess that said, I mean, insofar as, you know, it's perfectly clear the Labour Party is desperate for politics to go back to a battle between left versus right, and it wishes to run away from the Brexit battle as much as possible. What, of course, has been true of this Conservative government is that it has on a number of occasions proved quite blind to some of the questions of equity that surround its policy. One could think of the school meals row as one example. Mm -hmm. uh, and another very clear example, which is, I mean, Labour Party's never actually succeeded in nailing the government on, but the way in which the level of support provided for people who actually are expected to self-isolate because they've been in contact uh, with somebody with COVID or indeed have been proved positive themselves is frankly been woeful throughout um, the whole process. Uh, equally, the row about whether or not uh, one of the reasons why um, certain areas of the northwest of England have been particularly suffering the Indian variant. Well, you know, the, na the natural, uh, we, we saw again how a conservative politician is blamed, inclined to blame individual responsibility and others will say, no, no, it's to do with, with structural factors. So I think I mean, you know, two, so two points to make out of that. One is that we are still looking at a Conservative administration, which, while it seems to be, wants to be in, uh, interventionist vis-a-vis -vis infrastructure, you know, M4 example, it's not so clear how interventionist it will want to be in the longer term in terms of current spending, uh, which is where eventually the argument about the post-pandemic state uh, will be. And that certainly that its inclinations on current spending have not necessarily necessarily been ones that address issues of equity. I mean, the, the, the vision of levelling up is clearly much more one clearly of trying to improve the infrastructure in such a way that therefore people get access to good jobs in the labour market. And that's the way in which we deal with it. And that is sense, it's, it, the, it can be portrayed as a relatively centre right way of trying to deal with inequality. So potentially the space will, uh, will therefore uh, open up to a degree. But it does therefore mean, and in a sense, we're all of us, I think, intellectually challenged at the moment. I mean, until we know quite when we're out of the pandemic and we quite know what the shape of public opinion is uh, uh, out, of the, out of the pandemic, uh, we won't at that point begin to get some idea about how our politics is going to debate uh, the character of post-pandemic uh, uh, Britain. But uh, certainly what is true is the Labour Party cannot, I think, carry on Frankly, and it doesn't matter whether it's about Brexit or whether it's about left versus right, really being virtually ideas free as a party, uh, so far as its stance is concerned. It, it needs to move on from simply trying to attack the government about various aspects of competence to actually beginning to come up with ideas as to how it thinks Britain uh, should be governed, because that, that really is the kind of enormous gap that there is in the party at the moment. And frankly, you know, it's one of the reasons why people are wondering whether Keir Starmer is the right person for the job. You know, br um, brilliant lawyer who can deal with a brief, but can he write his own brief? Because that's what you need to be able to do as leader of the Labour Party.
Paul, I'm going to come back to you in a sec with another cracker, but just to give uh, advance notice, Dan and Nicola, we're going to move on to Devo Max and what it is and whether it's an effective strategy in a minute. But Paula, we've got a question here from Sarah who says, have the Conservatives successfully captured the working class for the long term? <laughs> no pressure. How long have I got? <laughs> <laughs> Because I think I need at least till one o'clock just to talk about what the working class are. <laughs> you can dispute the premise of the question, of course. I'm going to take it. So there, there are lots of different ways I could answer the question. And, and I'm not going to tackle the what are the working class. People can go and look at my Twitter feed if they want to find out more about how I might tackle that. I don't think we are in a place now where any party is capturing any group forever or even necessarily for two consecutive elections. I think we're in a place where people are quite disconnected from parties and therefore might well move around in unpredictable ways um, mm. in different elections. Now we, we saw a lot of that in 2019, be it at the different elections that we had or in the polling generally, a lot of volatility. I don't think that volatility has gone away. I, I said, I think it was at yesterday's panel, that it feels to me as if we kind of froze where we were at the start of the pandemic and we haven't defrosted yet. Um, and I think once we do get into that place where politics is defrosted, if you like, and people are, are kind of actively engaging again, that there's still a lot of volatility there. The other thing I would say about politics and class is that if you're going to have that conversation, if you're going to talk about the working class, you really have to talk about turnout. Um, turnout amongst some parts of the working class is very, very low. So it's not that the Conservatives have necessarily captured that vote, but that that vote isn't turning out at all. Um, and I think that's part of the conversation that needs to be had there. Um, but mm. I could I could go on answering this question till quarter past one, and I don't, I don't think that would be good use of the time. And that was, that was something that was very much stressed by all the panellists yesterday, is, you know, considering how low turnout was in these local elections, it is a warning against drawing too many conclusions about what they might mean. Oh, yeah, but hang on. The turnout wasn't particularly low in these local elections compared with other local elections. So long as you're comparing local elections with local elections. No, but they're... Well, you know, frankly, the, frank, frankly, the point stands. And that certainly at the moment, what is clear is that the structure that was bequeathed to us by Brexit is still with us. Right, that's the thing you have to take away. Can I come in here just for a sec? Oh, go on then. Um, so, you know, before the local elections, there was a lot of discussion about how particular narratives would become entrenched early on, and we'd read the elections through these narratives. I think we've forgotten very quickly um, just how poorly Boris Johnson was performing in terms of approval until you know, a week or two into March uh, when he got a vaccine bounce. And we've now got this established narrative that these past elections have been elections in which incumbents have done very well. There's been an incumbency advantage. It's worth pausing to think that that's quite an extraordinary outcome at the end of a or after a period in a pandemic where across the UK, we've had one of the highest excess death rates uh, anywhere in, in the world. And if you then pause and think about that vaccine bounce, right, the process of, um, uh, of that vaccine task force that Kate Bingham uh, led was really quite an extraordinary process. It is a case study in very high risk, very high reward policymaking. Mm. It wasn't triggered by any of the um, prominent 
advocates of that sort of approach. It wasn't triggered by Dominic Cummings. It was led by Patrick Vallant. So it was led by a scientist. When it started, Kate Bingham got a lot of criticism for being just yet another example of the government pouring money into, into um, projects that wouldn't work out. So there's been this very narrow path to vaccine success, which has produced an incumbency advantage at a relatively late stage. Now, if you change that around and look at everything else apart from the UK government, what you find is that the, uh, the SNP government in Scotland, the Labour government in Wales, and local mayors who stood up to the centre all also got an incumbency advantage. And it seems to me that's a quite different kind of incumbency advantage, right? And then again, I think that the UK government has yet to understand, and we're seeing this from some of the very preliminary work in the Welsh election study and the Scottish election study, that in Scotland and Wales, vaccine rollout success is credited about as much to the devolved government as it is to the UK government. You know, clearly procurement was only a UK government thing, but what people experience when they go to a local leisure centre or GP practice is actually delivery by the devolved government. Um, mm. So these things are much more complex and, and, and that straightforward kind of, oh, it's all about incumbency, yeah, yeah. I think is something it's worth pausing and thinking about because it's both extraordinary and it doesn't quite mean what I think uh, people in the UK government think it means in other parts of the UK. That's really interesting. In fact, I think you should write as a blog on that over the weekend and get it on the website, say, Monday. So there we go. Well volunteered. And the other thing about narrative and sequencing that's fascinating, I think Paul has talked talks about this this week, is the sequencing of results over that weekend uh, and people drawing conclusions and, you know, Labour ending up in a sort of internal fight before their good results started coming through and so they couldn't actually make as much of those as perhaps they might have done. Uh, Devo Max, I promised you. So I suppose there are several different issues about Devo Max. I mean, firstly, you might want to tell us what it is. Secondly, you might want to tell us whether or not it is a solution to the problems that the devolution settlement is facing at the moment. And thirdly, whether in a sense, given the state of public opinion, particularly in Scotland, whether the ship has sailed uh, and whether it's no longer, you know, if, it, if that ever were a solution to Scotland, whether it still is. So in any particular order, I mean, you want to go first, Nicola? Sure. I'm going to try and answer this in a roundabout way, so bear with me. When <laughs> Theresa May became Prime Minister, one of the first things she said was Brexit means Brexit, right? Because she didn't know what it meant. And it could have meant a whole host of things. And the same is true of any constitutional option, including independence, including Devo Max. It can be a spectrum of things. Mm -hmm. um, if you were to try and apply that to Scotland today, it probably means something different to what it meant in 2014 when people were talking about reforming devolution um, and we've already had that reform with an extension of tax power. So if you're going to talk about Devo Max now, presumably you mean a stronger version of devolution than the one that we currently have. Mm -hmm. So that's, for me then, Devo Max means however people define it. By itself, as a term, it's fairly empty in content. And um, so what could it mean in practice then? Then you would be looking at um, the, the areas where the Scottish Parliament doesn't have, currently have competence and considering where it might expand its powers. That might include 
immigration, it might include employment policy, it might include more fiscal levers, borrowing capacity and so on. So there, are, there is definitely room within the constitutional settlement for a stronger uh, devolved system. The bigger weakness that has been revealed, uh, particularly during the Brexit process, is that the devolved institutions, the devolved governments, don't have any influence over UK government policymaking that affects them. So we're seeing that now played out in trade policy. Mm. We've seen it played out in the Brexit negotiations. And we've seen it played out in terms of internal market legislation. So these are things that will have profound effects on areas of devolved power, areas of devolved competence, but over which the devolved institutions don't have any influence. And the way that you do you do get in federal systems, for example, they, they have a balance of the things that they decide themselves and the things that they can influence that have an impact on them. So I think where, yes, there is scope for an alternative set of constitutional arrangements to put to people, but I'm not convinced that it would necessarily be more popular than the other constitutional options. John, I'm sure, will come in with more um, insight into how public opinion has evolved um, over the last uh, few years. Uh, but I think if you were looking at, I don't think it could be realistically put as an alternative to independence before you have a, a question to decide independence. Okay. Um, so I, I, you know, I don't think it's going to buy people off or buy off the Scottish government to say, okay, well, we're not going to give you a referendum on independence, but here, have this. You know, I, that, that's not going to work. Um, but it's uh, possible um, that it could go that a worked out proposal could go alongside independence in some sort of deliberative process or a referendum. But it's very difficult to see that coming from the current administration in the UK government. It's not going to. Yeah. John, Dan, do you want to, either of you want to? Yeah. Um, I think the honest truth is that for the time being at least, um, the good ship constitutional question has sailed out of the harbour and it's left the pallets containing Devo Max on the quayside. Um, there is no doubt that it was a relatively popular idea before the 2014 independence referendum, but in the end, both sides uh, in sorting out the terms of the October agreement that led to that referendum, uh, decided that it was in their interest not to have the middle option on the ballot paper. Both sides, uh, and this is true of a number of ways like that referendum decided, both sides decided to play poker. Um, there have been a couple of polls done a few months ago, which asked people to choose directly between independence the current situation and you know devo max stroke more powers uh more powers comes a pretty miserable third um people ask whether they want two items or three items on a referendum and they tend to say two items and i think one has to what, what one has to understand now is that we're looking at a deeply polarized society we are looking at a country which is now pretty strongly divided between uh, those on the independent side of the argument, those on uh, the unionist side of the argument. Um, that was revealed in the way in which people's constitutional preference shaped the way in which people voted in the, 
in the election earlier this month to an unprecedented degree, um, including in the way in which uh, those on the unionist side were uh, willing to vote tactically to a very substantial degree and thereby actually denied the SNP uh, their overall majority. Um, and that, um, sure, people like Gordon Brown et al are still desperate to try to find the middle ground, but um, it's looking pretty shaky and pretty thin at the moment. And certainly you would need to do an awful lot of work uh, to get people behind it. And I think in particular, the fundamental problem at the end of the day now probably is at the end of the day, you know, there are those on the national side of the argument who will feel that independence will satisfy their sense of identity and their sense of where sovereignty in Scotland should lie. And there are those on the, on the unionist side who will feel that remaining inside the UK with still a significant role for the UK government will satisfy their sense of identity and, and where sovereignty will lie. And that it's very, very difficult to see how you're going to create an emotional, affective uh, sentiment behind more devolution. Um, given the extent to which uh, the societies must really become polarised on this issue. Dan, I'm going to come to you in a sec, but just a quick word to the audience. Please do keep A, sending your questions in and B, voting for the ones you want me to ask. And if you're thinking, what's the point in voting because there's a question that's been at the top since the start that he hasn't asked yet, that's because I've, there is a question on the DUP and Northern Ireland. And what I would suggest, we're having a panel in the, I think the 10th of June, uh, specifically on the politics of Northern Ireland. And I think uh, we can pose that question to them then. I think then you're dealing with people who are specialists in Northern Ireland, which isn't the case here. But so do keep voting for the ones you want me to put to the panel. Uh, Dan, there is, is a specific Welsh aspect to this. Um, I think there is a there is a Welsh aspect to this. Yes, which is, you know, as John said earlier, um, opinion is more fragmented in Wales, and it seems to be very clearly divided in, in Scotland. Uh, having said that, um, you know, the balance of opinion in Wales is, is probably still in favour of more devolution. And again, as Nicola said, you know, there's a bit of a Humpty Dumpty to this. These words mean what the people who say them want to them to mean no more, no less. So, you know, what is Max? Uh, what is more, uh, these are uh, these are kind of imponderables, or or they're defined by fiat. Uh, I'd make a slightly different point, which is that there's a sense in which more devolution, or even devolution max, is a, is a sort of continuation of what had been happening previously, and and you know the 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 broader constitutional questions are really. Um, uh, not addressed by continuing a kind of ad hoc bilateral set of accommodations, often kind of grudgingly given from the UK centre, um, without really much thought about how they stack up as a bundle of powers for the devolved authorities, or as a set of powers that have been kind of relinquished from the centre. And here we go back, I think, to the... Uh, the really tricky question that um, uh, the, 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 the Paula discussed earlier about, about, you know, what to do about England. And if people in England think that, you know, Westminster is their parliament, um, you know, but they think that England should be, uh, should have a voice, you know, that, that there's, uh, there's a, a lack of 
attention to English concerns as English concerns, um, then that becomes very, very difficult to, to address. Um, you know, there may be some, uh, some signs that, um, that people like Andy Burnham, Burnham can mobilize sentiment on a, on, on a kind of city regional basis. But I think, I think the, the, the evidence that people in England really want uh, regional devolution is just not there. Um, you know, had those institutions been created a couple of decades ago, maybe sentiment would have built up around them and political competition over them would have generated something. Uh, uh, but regional devolution in England is a solution to the problem of the over-centralization of the UK state. It's not a direct solution to the problem of, you know, how do you address the concerns of England as England? And, you know, that's just a really naughty problem. It's, it, it's a problem that I think, you know, I struggle, anyone would struggle to find a solution to. And we just seem to have been kind of circulating around the same proposals over and over again without, without really much, much progress on them. And that ends up with devolved governments. And, and this has been particularly the case in Wales, having a kind of incoherent package of powers, which has changed continually since devolution at the end of the uh, end of the 1990s you know in, in in a lot of these debates people say well now isn't the moment to uh, to have a big constitutional debate well you know the last 20 plus years in Wales have been <laughs> constantly preoccupied with constitutional issues and we still have a Senate which was constructed originally as a kind of large local government for Wales and just doesn't have enough members to produce an executive and a legislature with enough people in it to scrutinize that executive properly. Now, that may be something on which Mark Drakeford makes some moves over the next period of time. Uh, but you know, these are really important issues for the effective operation of democratic institutions. They're not popular. No one wants to kind of vote for more politicians, really. Um, but they are very, very, very important, and they just don't get heard uh, in, in, in the wider uh, debate. So while we're touching on England and in response to uh, what was the next question I was going to... Paul, did you want to come in? I just wanted to, to, to add something to that. Um, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, I think that's something that we're going to see changes in once we're kind of out of the pandemic period. Because I think one of the things that the last 12 and a bit months have done is really highlight to people in England that Scotland and Wales can do things differently. And a lot of, I mean, um, Dan gave the example of, of the Conservative MP who couldn't go to the beach, but, you know, people, I live in Gloucester, so I'm on that border. You know, the fact that people could, could pop over from Wales to have a beer here at some points and go the other way at other points um, has really brought home to people that things are different in these different areas. And I think, as again, I think we're still in that kind of slightly frozen stage where people aren't thinking too deeply about these issues. But as we come out of them, people's attitudes to England, Scotland and Wales as being different, I think will have changed. And that's something that um, might have quite a profound influence on politics going forward. Okay. We've got a question from Vijay Srao about whether, I mean, he's saying, will there be more regional devolution in England uh, to places like Cornwall? And I suppose if I can sort of add to that question, it's not just will there be, but you're saying there doesn't seem to be much of a demand for it, but is that a way of addressing the English question, do you think? <laughs> so, 
there hasn't been a demand for um, regional devolution. And even now, outside of a few, one or two very popular mayors, I'm not sure there still is. And the thing is, when John will know this probably better than I do, but when you look at this question from the British Social Attitudes data, if you take out the people who don't want any change, who are kind of quite happy with how things were, you then get this really interesting split between the ones who want sort of regional devolutions and the ones that want an English parliament. And that split, when I last looked at it, worryingly falls almost directly along the same axis as the Brexit divide. <laughs> so Remainers, if you would like, want to, want to see regional devolution, um, leavers, to use the shorthand, are more interested in an English parliament. So the whole debate within England potentially splits along that axis in a way that might become quite problematic for both parties, but particularly for the Labour Party if they start trying to push an agenda which is all about regional devolution. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll add a little bit to this. Uh, you mentioned Cornwall, Anne, and of course Cornwall is one of the few places that did manage to get a devolution deal with the government, but without having a mayor. Um, but of course it's relatively rare in the strength of its uh, distinctive sentiment. Uh, distinctive sentiment. Um, the, I, I mean, Paul has put her nail, uh, put a, uh, hit the nail on the head of uh, you know, one important aspect of the debate in England, and that is that whereas at the end of the day, there isn't really any serious argument in Scotland and in Wales as to what you devolve to, if you are going to devolve, in England there is. There is this division between those who think that the question for England is whether it needs an English answer or whether the answer needs to be a regional one. And Paul is right about the the character of the support for those two things. Of course, there are also uh, perceptions of interest here. I mean, certainly until recently, at least, the large sections of the Conservative Party regarded regional devolution as a attempt by the Labour Party to carve up England to his, its advantage, uh, whereas an English Parliament was thought of as being rather more of a Conservative notion. You can still see um, elements of that. But the second thing I, 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 I would say with this is, at least so far as the debate about regional devolution is concerned, um, uh, my view is that it's essentially an argument about the operational efficiency and effectiveness of the state within England. And it's not really a debate that's about, uh, you know, how do we come up with a set of, of uh, constitutional arrangements that match uh, the distinct uh, uh, people's sense of sentiment or identity. At the end of the day, you know, a crucial difference between the regional devolution debate in England and the debate about uh, devolution to Scotland and Wales is that Scotland and Wales are nations where they have a distinctive sense of national identity and where as a result, a central reason why uh, you're having devolution is to reflect that sense of identity. You know, one of the reasons why the Labour Party's project on uh, regional devolution never took off is that the sense of sentiment, even in the northeast of England, was not sufficiently distinctive to sustain the idea that you needed regional devolution in order to achieve uh, to achieve, achieve people meets people's expectations. And of course, the other characteristic of the regional devolution debate in England is that you know, there was a remarkable similarity between the current metro mayor structure and the structure of the Metropolitan County Councils that was got rid of by Margaret Thatcher back in 1986. 
And again, you know, the point was that that was almost undoubtedly a mistake because there are aspects of running large cities with substantial hinterlands, not least in the area of transport, where you do need an upper tier of government. And in a sense, what a lot of what's happened with regional devolution England is to recreate the structures of local government that were got rid of in the 1980s. And to some degree, the same is true of London. So I think for all those reasons, what's going on in England and the debate in England is different in character from that in Scotland and Wales, which again, come back to Dan's point, does make it difficult to see how you could come up with any form of symmetrical devolution encapsulating the English regions together with Scotland and, and Wales uh, that would in any way be capable of being implemented that would, you know, would seem to meet what people wanted, might accept as devolution in England and might in any way meet, you know, demands for devol devolution max in Scotland. You want me to come in? Anna? Oh, I'm muted. Sorry, that's yeah. why. Nicola. Um, yeah, no, I was just going to say. Um, I mean, the, the size of England compared to the others is often the thing that's that's pointed to as a reason why you can't have federalism in the UK. It wouldn't work, and maybe that's maybe that is indeed uh, the case. But for me, it's not so much because England is so much bigger than the others. Because if you look at, say, I was looking up just out of curiosity, the numbers um, the other day in terms of population shares. Uh, the province of Ontario has 15 million people. The province of Prince Edward Island has 160,000 people. And they sit around a table as equals, as provinces, as equals with um, reasonably symmetrical um, devolution arrangements. So it's not impossible because of the difference in size. Of course, the difference within the UK is that England... Um, if you had devolution in England, it would still be one of the most centralised um, nations in Europe. And it's so much bigger compared to the state. So what would be left at the centre is, I suppose, um, one of the issues. But I think it's just important to, when we're talking about devolution within England and regional devolution and the examples that we've had, we're not meaning the same thing. So devolution in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland is about legislative autonomy and the power to do things differently, the power to make different laws and whole sets of institutional arrangements. There is nothing, nothing remotely like that in the examples of what we call regional devolution um, in England. You're talking at most at some spending autonomy, but they are still situated within a very centralised yeah. England. How important is trust here to make these kind of devolution settlements work? Because it seems to me it's pretty fundamental. And has that trust been eroded sort of over the last four or five years during this Brexit process? I get the sense that, you know, almost referring back to what we were saying about Devo Max is, you know, London can promise what it wants, but there's going to be a sense of scepticism, perhaps particularly in Scotland, about whether they'll deliver on, on what they say. Is that is that an issue here? I don't That's think... It's... Go ahead, Dan. I don't think it's just in Scotland. Um, you know, uh, the Labour government in Wales uh, has always been a pro-UK government. It's, it's wanted devolution, robust devolution, maybe even more devolution, uh, but it's been committed to the union. Um, by, the, uh, by the time when the 
pandemic restrictions were beginning to be introduced, uh, I think Brexit had driven relationships between the UK government and the Welsh government to the worst level by some considerable margin that I've ever that I've ever known. You know, I was on a on a panel with Jeremy Miles, who then was the council general and uh, dealt with constitutional matters. Uh, you know, and that was pretty clearly what he was saying. In that context, it was really remarkable the extent to which there was effective cooperation and coordination between the governments in the early stages of the pandemic. Uh, but certainly from a Welsh point of view, that was a collaboration that was contingent on the Welsh government biting its tongue on several issues. There was a whole row about the Welsh government trying to secure um, COVID tests from Roche, the, uh, the Swiss pharmaceutical company. Uh, the Welsh government refused to uh, give freedom of information requests on that, on the grounds that it would worsen the relationship between the Welsh government and the UK government. Then in the summer, uh, as the UK government developed its internal market proposals, uh, a topic on which the, the Scottish government had decided not to cooperate with the UK government, but the Welsh government had continued to cooperate, the UK government withdrew from conversations with Welsh government officials and announced the internal market white paper unilaterally. Um, and it was it was opposed by uh, uh, by the Welsh government as well as the Scottish government, uh, you know. And we're now in a situation where I, I haven't seen the news while we've been on, uh, but where the UK government's about to announce a deal. It seems uh, a trade deal uh, between the UK and uh, and Australia, and you know all the devolved governments, but including Mark Drakeford, have said this is not something that they want. And Mark Drakeford has talked about this deal being potentially existential for Welsh identity. Uh, you know, there, the uh, agriculture is a, uh, a, a marginal industry in some respects in, in lots of parts of Wales, but it's also an anchor industry uh, for uh, rural communities in, in West Wales, Mid Wales, North Wales, you know, uh, right across the country. And in particular, it's, um, it provides the foundation for, for Welsh language communities. So it has that, uh, that kind of identity element very, very strongly written through it. Uh, and, you know, the indications seem to be that the UK government, um, you know, uh, uh, prizes this deal with, with Australia, um, despite objections from, from the devolved governments. Uh, and, it, you, you know, so it's hard to see that there's much work being done to rebuild that, that trust, indeed, there's lots of evidence that, uh, you know, talking about the M4 earlier, that the UK government is looking to bypass uh, um, the devolved government in Wales. So it, it's very hard to see the system working unless there's a really substantial effort to rebuild trust. That having been said, you know, it's a really complex and contradictory situation. So there's also some evidence, uh, particularly around so-called um, uh, uh, common frameworks that, um, you know, that the new practices are being developed that have gone much further in including officials from uh, from all parts of the UK uh, in this one particular area uh, than had ever been achieved before or, or than, than you might have expected, given given the other stuff that's going on. I mean, another way of thinking about this, Anne, is that at the end of the day, we have a UK government that was determined to end any idea of sharing sovereignty with Brussels. 
and it's therefore perhaps not terribly surprising that it's equally reluctant to share power with the devolved institutions. We have at the end of the day, a government that is clearly determined that it wants to make the decisions and is relatively uh, uninterested in sharing and compromising power with other institutions. And that's just, that's just the feature of this government. Hmm. Nicola, did you want to come in on this? You don't need to. If you don't. No, I mean, I, I agree with both what Dan and, and John were saying there. And I do think that actually that, that attitude um, that we are seeing in the UK government is perhaps the biggest risk facing the union um, in its long-term survival, um, actually, rather than to, to see... Um, it's almost as if devolution is seen as something to compete with rather than something to celebrate as part of the UK's constitutional fabric. I, I was going to just come back to one thing about um, the trade deal and the link between that and the internal market legislation that proved so controversial mm. um, from the perspective of the devolved governments and was passed without their consent uh, just before Christmas. Um, the, the issue with a trade deal is if there is a, a deal with Australia or any other country that um, allows the import of goods that are not to the same standard as goods produced in the UK, including within Wales or within Scotland, there is nothing since the Internal Market Act that the devolved governments could do to force additional standards or force their mm. own standards um, on these goods. They cannot discriminate against them. They cannot prevent them from competing equally uh, with uh, goods produced in Wales or in Scotland um, because of the rules of the internal market legislation. So there is a real interaction between trade on the one hand mm. and the domestic market. And both of these things um, seem to be eroding uh, the authority of the devolved institutions to pursue the kinds of policy goals that they may want to pursue. Now, we've got, we've got a question from Ken Penton that I'm going to try and make relevant to what we were just talking about. I mean, what Ken is asking is what the consequences will be of the impacts of Brexit amongst some of those groups that might have voted for it, but are facing potentially negative implications as a result. And he mentions fishing communities and farmers. And it seems to me that this is quite sort of apposite to the discussion we were just having about trade deals. I mean, is there... How does this play into public opinion, particularly, I think, in Scotland, but also in Wales, uh, attitudes towards independence or shaping political attitudes? Because some of these communities, you know, a lot of farmers voted for Brexit, uh, a lot in the fisheries industry voted for Brexit. If they find that the impact isn't what they had anticipated, what happens then? Is there a, is there a sort of potentially important political or electoral implication of this? It's a nightmare of a question, I'm sorry. Well, I mean, there's a much wider issue here, which is, uh, does the government eventually succeed in persuading uh, leave voters across the UK that Brexit has proven to be a success? Or do they come to the conclusion that it hasn't delivered what they were hoping? I mean, you know, all that one can say, I mean, you know, there aren't frankly enough fishers and farmers in opinion polls yeah. for us to be able to say anything about their particular reaction, all that one can say is that there isn't much sign 
broadly speaking, of voters changing their minds about Brexit. We're still pretty much split 50-50 across the UK as a whole. There mm. might have been a slight easing recently in, in, in support for rejoining, but it, 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 it's pretty marginal. Um, it's still a you know, extremely divisive issue across the UK as a whole. And insofar as we, well, I, I mean, two points to make. One is that the Conservative Party is very heavily dependent on maintaining the support of Leave voters. Um, and therefore, uh, if indeed there were to be a voter reaction against Brexit between now and 2023, 2024, that would make the life of the Conservative Party undoubtedly more difficult because those voters would probably defect. There's no guarantee that's going to happen. North of the border, of course, the issue does has long been playing into independence. Um, one of the ironies of the 2014 uh, independence referendum is that the issue of Europe was utterly irrelevant to how people voted. Uh, that's no longer true. Brexit does now play into the independence debate. And, you know, frankly, I mean, you know, not to, uh, to shy away from this, I think basically the fundamental reason why Scotland's position in the union is now highly problematic is wholly attributable um, to Brexit. The only reason why the SNP have been pursuing a referendum for the last four years, and we do tend to forget the SNP have been trying to pursue a referendum for four years already, is because of Brexit. And the reason why we support for independence is running at around 50% is because of Brexit. It is support, its support has risen amongst Remain voters um, and has, has helped to fuel it. So certainly if Brexit is thought to be going pear-shaped, it's not going to make defending the union any easier either. So yeah, it, is, it is a pretty fun. I mean, you know, at the moment, you know, Brexit's gone and we all think it no, no longer matters. Well, it is the biggest public policy choice that the UK has arguably made since 1973. Um, and once the pandemic is over, we are going to be back to debating its consequences, et cetera, et cetera. And the evaluations that voters come to this are going to be pretty important. Dan. So two things very quickly. The first is um, the, 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 the work that we did uh, uh, at UK and a Changing Europe recently on comfortable levers uh, throws up some interesting uh, findings on this. In particular, that comfortable levers really don't want hormone-treated beef or chlorinated chicken uh, on their supermarket shelves, and they would like to buy local. Now, you know, the fact that this is a trade deal with Australia is probably the best place that the UK government could be making that deal, because I suspect, although I don't have evidence for it, that these same voters will have a sense of kind of fellow feeling with Australia that's stronger than a sense of fellow feeling they'd have, say, with the US uh, or, or, or other parts of the world. So, you know, that may work out in other kinds of ways. And the second thing to say is just to advertise, there's a, there's a project on the Governance After Brexit programme uh, led by Sarah Hobbalt, uh, who was on the political parties um, session uh, the other day with James Tilley, which is exactly looking at uh, um, farmers and looking at uh, um, you know the Brexit voting parts of Wales and tracking their attitudes over time. So we may well, uh, uh, I, I think, have some really interesting evidence on whether or not there are any changes amongst these groups uh, as Brexit uh, plays out uh, over the next period of time. So that's definitely one to watch and part of the UK and Changing Europe uh, research family, if you like. 
God, we've been a well-oiled machine today doing cross-references and stuff, haven't we? This is superb. Can uh, I throw in another one before you... Before oh, even better, yes. On. So you wrote about this earlier in the week, so perhaps you should be the one saying this and answering this question. But the, the way that you're framing the question, if you think about it slightly differently, and, and Dan raised it there in terms of the comfortable levers stuff, that this starts to get at some of the differences, the fault lines within the Leave Coalition. Mm. So not all Leave voters voted Leave for the same reasons. Some have a vision of a unregulated market and products coming in and competing from everywhere. But, but, but far more have a view of it being allowing us to, to buy British and to, to, to eat local and to do those kind of things. And there is then a tension in that conservative Leave Coalition think the bigger group are the side that actually are quite happy with the regulation and want to and want that but that does start to point to ways in which Labour potentially if they were able to find a way to talk about it can start to push against some of those divides. Yeah, yeah well if we're cross-referencing uh, projects I mean the governance under, after Brexit project that I've been running I mean you know one major headline is that is that uh, once we move away from the issue of immigration um, a lot of the other post-Brexit choices that the UK faces, including with respect to uh, trade regulation and regulatory alignment, there isn't much relationship between whether you're a Leave voter or Remain voter. And that, for example, in taking on the issue of um, allowing the uh, potential sale uh, and, and growth of GM foods, the UK government are taking on an issue where there is still clearly a wide degree of scepticism and don't look to the Leave voters to 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 re to rescue on this. They are, they they are as concerned about that issue as as the average Remain voter is. So, you know, I mean, one one of the ironies I think of the, of the phase two of the Brexit negotiations is that indeed the government's principal objective, which is regulatory dealignment, there's relatively little evidence that this is actually something that was meeting a widespread public demand. So I, I imagine there's a gulf in salience, though, between the sort of regulatory issues, which people do worry about, and the sort of tariff and quota issues which are at stake in this particular negotiation. That is to say, people are less likely to, ch to sort of change their minds over this because a few farmers are adversely affected, but perhaps very likely to change their minds about this if they see that Brexit has led to a massive drop in regulatory standards. So there's lots of different issues bundled. I'm going to squeeze one more question in. I mean, partly... Uh, as a thank you to the audience for not bombarding me with questions on are the Labour Party dead, which was basically all we got yesterday. Uh, but it, it takes us back. I mean, it's just I'm quite interested in this. It takes us back to the, the recent elections. And it's a question saying uh, from Wynne, uh, was Labour's focus on sleaze a mistake and ineffective in the recent election? Well, the answer to that is you can't answer that question with respect to the elections because you would need local elections at the beginning of April and local elections at the beginning of May in order to compare the two things. <laughs> um, all that one can say to you is that um, the opinion polls for the Labour Party in the middle of April were basically horrendous. Uh, we were heading in the direction of a double-digit lead for the Labour Party, for the Conservatives in the opinion polls which if that had pertained through to the local elections would have meant that even the uh, areas where the last election was in 2017 and which had voted quite heavily for Remain, which is where a lot of Labour's relative good news was, 
um, that, that wouldn't have been good news either because you've been looking at a swing to uh, the Conservatives pretty much everywhere. In practice, the local elections were not as bad as the polls were saying mm. in the second and third week of April. And to that extent, at least, insofar as opinion polls tell us anything, probably uh, the, uh, Mr Johnson's difficulties over his wallpaper perhaps at least rescued Labour Party from an even worse set of results than might otherwise have been the case. Brilliant. That's brought us right on to... Sorry, can I just, all these questions about must Labour lose and can they ever win again takes me back to my undergraduate days when um, I was at Strathclyde University taught by John Curtis and uh, among others. And there were loads of books around at the time um, asking exactly yeah. the same questions. A decade yeah. later, there were books asking the same questions about must the Conservatives always lose as well. So the British political system has traditionally been able to alternate eventually between the parties. Now, we're in a different context just now. There are different issues. If the Labour Party was ever to ask my advice, which they will not, um, I mean, I think the problem that I find with Labour is I don't know what it believes in. It, it seems to be looking for issues that will resonate with people, that will somehow connect to people, instead of maybe taking a step back and thinking, what do we as a political party believe? And then trying to be to incite some passion uh, about those beliefs. But that, for me, I think is missing at the minute. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And we've come to the end of our time. So thank, thank you to all of you, Paula, John, Dan and Nicola. That was really, really interesting. And uh, I was very nervous beforehand that we wouldn't have enough questions or enough to talk about, but we could have gone on for a lot, lot longer. So thanks so much for that. Thank you all for watching. As I said, we're going to have this event on Northern Ireland in a couple of weeks time. We've got a massive, great programme of events again to mark the fifth anniversary of the referendum. So look out for those and uh, enjoy the newsletter, which is hopefully sat in all your inboxes as we speak. But for the moment, thanks ever so much. Have a great weekend when it comes. And thank you particularly to you for.